Almost, by Stefan Molyneux, Book 3, Chapter 81. Runciman was almost too much for Reginald to bear. Cuthbert had had his faults, but had been able to rouse himself to some sort of passion about British interests and international affairs. Runciman was almost too urbane to draw breath. He smoked endlessly through a long black cigarette holder. He had lazy eyes, a long nose, and a tiny mustache. He was imperturbable. He yawned when their aeroplane had hit a chilly downdraft over some mountains. Reginald was used to yawns from Cuthbert, but this was quite another matter. Cuthbert's indifference had been an affectation. Runciman's was innate. On the airplane, Runciman had made things very clear to Reginald. "'You see, my boy, it's all quite simple. "'All our negotiation will be a show. "'We've already talked to the German Foreign Office "'and asked them to give us a list of their demands. We, "'We've assured them that we are going to press Benes "'into two dimensions to accept them. "'Classic diplomacy. "'We go, we lie, we return.' We hint to Hitler what we might do, fight. We hint to Benes what we might not do, another yawn, fight. As Runciman dozed, Reginald's hands kept wandering over the armrests of his humming seat. The image of his tiny little brother in a garden shed, turning blue, kept coming back to him. It was accompanied by a question which he tried to bat away with all the mental hands he could summon, which was enough for a hall full of riotous applause. But the question made it through anyway. What am I doing here? He glanced over at Runciman's dozing profile. He saw that the older man had fallen asleep, holding a cigarette still burning in its holder between two fingers. Reginald reached out and took it to put it out. "'I say, old fellow,' murmured Runciman, not opening his eyes, "'you want one, just ask.' "'Sorry,' said Reginald, "'I thought you were done.' Runciman grunted, turning to the window. Reginald stabbed out the cigarette. He remembered a time, as an undergraduate, when he had tried to smoke for a week and had been driving when his cigarette fell from his lips onto his groin, scalding his testicles, and he had felt trapped panic at his need to keep his eyes on the road as well as to stop the burning. Reginald sighed, closing his eyes. If I ever figure out the point of these random little visions. His daughters had been heartbroken to see him go. They had clutched at him, crying at Heathrow Airport as he stood, distractedly watching a fire truck wailing past. Wendy stood there, smiling suspiciously. Reginald had imagined her getting the children up before him in the dark and spending a good hour coaching them how to make him feel as guilty as possible for doing his job, for keeping the bombs suspended far above them by force of will alone. But he had kissed her goodbye anyway, and she had been the one to almost make him cry. Just as he was leaving... Wendy had thrown herself into his arms, clutched him with almost superhuman strength, and whispered into his ear, So lonely, so alone. 
The statement had been driven into his ear with such guileless force that it had moved him deeply. He would be a better husband. He would stay home more, listen to her drivel. It could be done. He was not above returning a volleyed olive branch. Reginald was stunned at the hospitality and generosity of the Czechs. Venice, in particular, was very gracious. Reginald found this surprising, until he remembered that Venice assumed that Runciman was the representative of an ally in his struggle to save his country. It was very sad, really, and Reginald often didn't have more than one glass of wine at lunch. It seemed dishonest, somehow. Runciman seemed to feel the same way. He came into Reginald's hotel room one night, a little drunk. "'It's not as if,' he slurred, waving his cigarette around, "'we could keep Czechoslovakia the same afterwards. "'If old Adolf seizes it and we all go to a merry old war, "'and we win after God knows how long, "'what would be left of Czechoslovakia? "'A smoking crater, that's what, let me tell you. "'It would never be restored to its current dimensions. "'How could it? "'It's this fucking country that is causing all the problems in the first place.' His voice lowered. You know what they should have done, those punch-drunk bastards who framed Versailles in the first place? They should have had a fucking plebiscite. They had them everywhere else. Why not here? <laughs> I'll tell you why, Reggie, my boy. Because the krauts here want to be part of the generalized krautland. And why not? Germany for the Germans, I say. And now Hitler wouldn't need to come calling because he'd already have his precious sudate lead. All right, said Reginald, helping the good lord up. You don't have to justify yourself to me. Same side, remember? Reginald did not like the French ambassador very much. Charles Corbin was a terribly thin, terribly nervous man who had clearly been put out to pasture here before events overtook the indifference of his appointment. Reginald briefly wondered why the French had not replaced him, but then recollected himself. No culture which puts snails on a dinner plate can be considered rational. Charles was in a perpetual panic. At a private lunch, he probed British resolve with great delicacy. The grave danger, he said, is uh, that uh, we all get pulled into a war which we do not want and, and it cannot win. Lord Runciman yawned. Well, that's a fairly obvious idea, isn't it? But you are in the boat with us, Lord Runciman cried Charles excitedly. If we must go to the aid of Czechoslovakia, you are bound to follow. Lord Runciman was picking at his fingernails. Well, that is, as are many things, both true and false. If Germany wishes to reabsorb the Sudetenland and the Sudeten Germans want to be reabsorbed and the whole business can be achieved bloodlessly, then what is the problem? If France chooses to go to war over this, then... I think that the British cabinet might review our obligations to France. Reginald cringed inwardly at Lord Runciman's words, but Charles seemed both unruffled and unsurprised. But that is uh, the great question, though, he said. Where does the uh, principle of national self-determination end? A, a, a country? A, a province? County? City? Lord Runciman smiled. <laughs> my, my street? My house? My... Fingernail? Who cares? A surgeon doesn't have to know why an arm exists or what its philosophical definition is. You 
Cut, sew, and go. He paused. His smile broadened. <laughs> Actually, quite apt. We, we are amputating the toe of the Sudetenland to save the body uh, of Europe. The Frenchman scowled. But we do not know what it will or will not save. The, the, the rest of Czechoslovakia cannot be defended without the Sudetenland. Of course. But we must be empirical. I mean, even your juridical Gallic mind must recognize that. Hitherto, all of Hitler's expansions have been for the sake of reclaiming German-speaking populations. If a man steals my watch, I may enter his house, even force my entry to retrieve it. The framers of Versailles just cut Germany too close to the bone, that is all. Now we have to find a way of restoring to Herr Hitler what is his by historical right without losing the appearance of uh, honor. Charles bit at his thumbnail. Ah, but how, how to keep the appearance of honor? If we break our faith with Czechoslovakia, no French treaty will be worth its ink for a hundred years, maybe more. Well, let's let next century take care of itself, hmm? murmured Lord Runciman indulgently. We really must try to focus ourselves uh, on the next week or so. Uh, what does the British government propose to do? asked Charles. We are going to press Benes to uh, accept uh, the German proposals. And if he does not, well, what do you think? If he does not, then France will have to defend Czechoslovakia. Why? Because we have the 24 Treaty, of course. And the treaty states that if Czechoslovakia is attacked, but she won't be. Charles scowled mightily for a moment, then relaxed visibly. You know this? Uh, how? I know this. Inductively, not deductively. The frown returned slightly. Uh, explain, please. If a plebiscite is held in the Sudetenland, and they vote to return to Germany, Charles sat up excitedly, then, uh, then, then, my friend, if... Benes mobilizes against the German army. He is resisting a legitimate secession. Ah! cried Charles, clapping his hands together. Ah! We must only help if he is aggressed against. Otherwise, he's a man attacking the police as they come to reclaim a stolen watch. He is the aggressor. He is! Lord Runciman's eyes flashed vehemently for a moment. Reginald felt a little queasy. It seemed reasonable, but it had to be restated so many times and with such insistence that it began to feel unstable. It was a lie hoping to become true by repetition and variation, or a family story told so many times that it has become indistinguishable from memory. Reginald shuddered and propelled himself into the conversation. "'It will be viewed as a betrayal,' he said. "'Yes,' said Lord Runciman evenly. "'But war will be avoided, and relief has a historical habit of sweeping scruples aside.' "'America will not be pleased,' murmured Charles, his nail coming back up to his mouth. "'Oh, you and your Americans!' said Lord Runciman. You're all just jealous because their revolution worked out so much better than yours. Well, I have been trained in pessimism, said Charles. 
if we fail here and lose Czechoslovakia, then um, there will be a general war and uh, we shall have to call on the Americans just as the last time. Reginald nodded. And Chamberlain has refused Roosevelt's offer of mediation. Charles turned on him sharply. What? What? Lord Runciman shot him a savage look. Nothing. In internal matter. Reginald sat back, his lashes lowered, his cheeks red. He swore at himself many, many times, using words and phrases he would never have dared utter aloud. If the Americans uh, think that we are some sort of petri dish, Charles was saying, all feasting on each other for the sake of cowardice and expediency, they will not come to save us. They uh, will be like policemen watching a contained gang war, hoping we shall wipe each other out and leave them in peace. Lord Runciman scowled. Oh, you moralists. Everyone says, oh gosh, are we doing the right thing here? But none of you have the courage to act. You hedge your decision to do nothing, but still do nothing. Churchill does not do that, said Charles. Reginald, still burning from Lord Runciman's rebuke, was still surprised that nothing seemed to offend the nervous man. Well, smiled Lord Runciman, there is a reason that Mr. Churchill does not have a place in the cabinet. The likelihood of war rises with him, and vice versa. Hitler knows all about Churchill. Chamberlain does not want to offend Hitler, so keeps Churchill in the wilderness. They almost match, you know, said Reginald suddenly. Really? asked Charles. Churchill was in Berlin. He was going to meet Hitler, but then said to Hitler's aide, Why is your boss so against the Jews? I could understand being against a Jew if he was undermining the country or breaking the law, but to be against a man just because he is a Jew, it makes no sense. Reginald laughed. <laughs> Needless to say, the meeting was cancelled immediately. I like to think of them sitting across a table. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that meeting. Lord Runciman shrugged. Oh, they'd both just go for their pistols. Churchill is half American. He loves playing the Wild West Sheriff. Draw, Pilgrim! <laughs> have to admit it, though. When it comes to saber-rattling, no one does it better. He smiled, touching his palm to his chest. It's always such great theatre. Gets me every time. Tell me, Charles, he said abruptly, turning to the French ambassador. Is France ready to fight a war? Charles touched his fingertips together. Uh, we have uh, over one hundred seasoned divisions. Germany has forty-eight untested and raw. Czechoslovakia has twenty divisions. England has two. Yes, said Reginald, but we have a good deal of air power. Charles looked at him for a moment, then shrugged. All right. The secret line in the Rhineland remains unfinished. We estimated that the Czechs can hold out behind their fortifications for between three and six months. What about the Russians? asked Reginald. Lord Runciman snorted. That fool Stalin has just killed all his military commanders, right down to the battalion level. The Poles will never let what's left of his army through their lands. Can't say as I blame them. We'd never let Hitler come through England to attack Ireland. We'd lose both Ireland and England. Stalin might be able to send a few airplanes to Prague, perhaps, but they won't be of much material advantage. Charles had finished jotting down some notes. Uh, we have uh, 122 divisions in total. They're split 102 in the east and 20 in the west. Uh, Germany has 48, but they'll have to commit at least 35, 40 divisions to attacking Czechoslovakia. 
That leaves 8 to 12 in the west behind incomplete fortifications. Charles looked down for a long moment, then shuddered. If uh, there was going to be a war for certain, he said, it would be better now than later. At their current rate of conscription, Germany will have 105 divisions by this time next year. Assuming they take Czechoslovakia, but uh, it's worse than that. What? asked Lord Runciman. Well, Charles looked slightly embarrassed. Ella, a martial courage, uh, the noble city the warrior fights for. If we surrender to dictators, betray our allies, and allow our cowardice to put ourselves in a vastly worse position, then what right will we have to ask our soldiers to lay down their lives for us? It's like suing for peace. Once word gets out that the government is exploring peace terms, the soldiers all stop fighting. They wait and see. Rationally so. Lord Runciman nodded slowly. But, he said with effort, it's all nonsense. Charles looked less panicked. Clearly he had been arguing with himself, and with some success. Why? he asked. Because of air power. The Luftwaffe is very strong. Really? ejaculated Reginald, unable to stop himself. He had been hearing for years that the German air force was very weak. Then he realized, of course, the government has been saying that in order to avoid having to spend a fortune on parity in the air. But they'll never get away with it. You can't say that the Luftwaffe is weak one day to suit appeasement, and then say it is invisible the next day to suit appeasement. Churchill would tear them apart. Lord Runciman ignored Reginald's outburst. All these land forces are insignificant compared to air forces. All that the Luftwaffe has to do is bomb the hell out of Paris for three days, kill a few hundred thousand Parisians, and France will sue for peace on any terms. No use defending a crater, and the bombers will always get through. No, no. We must continue our course. We must hope that Hitler will stop after the Sudetenland. The old man looked at them soberly. We do not have enough information to ensure the deaths of many hundreds of thousands of people. Reginald could not sleep. He liked to go to bed early. He was thinking of hiring a prostitute. He had not had sex in a long, long time. He was worried, though, of bringing something home to Wendy. That would be an error big enough to grind him down forever and ever. Amen. The lunchtime conversation kept coming back to him. There was a core of depression, of depleted energy, of hopelessness at the center of appeasement that he had never noticed before. Before, he had always thought that those who opposed appeasement were the kind of men who had played too much with toy soldiers as children or boys who had been good at war games, like Tom, he thought, vividly recalling his younger brother's face that day when he successfully flew the trench. All that goddamned joy! And frankly, the risks were appalling. Reginald turned over in his bed, trailing the pale blankets like a cocoon, kicking his legs violently to get free. As we get closer... 
he thought. It gets more and more frightening. Losing the Rhineland is one thing. Austria was another. Czechoslovakia would be quite another. Losing Czechoslovakia would be a disaster of the first magnitude. We should not be suffered to live. The image of his daughter's beautiful faces came to his mind, and he sniffed in the dark. Once or twice he had read stories to them, and they had fallen asleep in the crooks of his arms, and he had had a vivid sense of using his body as a shield over them, that he would do that, that he would die for them, that he would exchange his life for theirs. And if Hitler should send a stray bomber to London, he thought, and the image came to him quite clearly he and Wendy being led to a white table in a basement. Charred bits of his daughter's spread over the tabletop, perhaps still smoking. A voice asking, Are there any distinguishing features? And he, thinking, Jocelyn had a birthmark on her ankle, and saying, Please, can you turn over the foot? And Wendy, turning to him as they left the hospital, and beating and biting at him, screaming curses, because he was in the foreign office, and he was supposed to protect them all. And then he was thrown back by her arms, which had suddenly become huge and green, like the legs of a praying mantis, and falling back against the building, and looking up to a droning sky full of bombers. And he screamed aloud, cursing God and praying for a direct hit. And Tom flew by very low, giving Reginald the thumbs up and opened fire on an enemy bomber, which fell from the sky straight at Reginald's stretched and screaming face. Reginald awoke. It had been a dizzying dip into sleep and a most unwelcome one. Those girls are my only justification, he thought in a rare moment of humility even with all the mess that Wendy and I have made of our lives, our marriage, those girls wash us both cleaner than clean. And what I am doing here will either be invisible to them or end them. He imagined Wendy's face and felt a sudden stab of terror. We maul each other and, and circle around each other as, as if we have an eternity left to correct all our mistakes. But we will die, and as we die, we will look back and curse ourselves for hurting what we had promised to love and protect. He remembered their first meeting. A lonely, unloved girl, far from home, lost in Spain. And me, a brash runner, but lost just the same. And we both need love so much so much that we cannot stand it, so much that we strike out at it, and we are chained together for some crime that we can neither of us remember, and we will remain chained together until we learn to love our chains, love each other, and only when we love each other, when we can speak 
truth and forgive from the heart, only then will we be free. Because our only chains are ourselves. Reginald was working himself into a fine sentimental frenzy. He turned over again, his eyes brimming, and stared at the telephone, black and gleaming in the dark. He imagined calling her, calling Wendy. He imagined how the conversation might go. Wendy, Reginald, what's wrong? Nothing, nothing is wrong. I, I, I just wanted to, but you never call when you're working. I, I, I wanted to, I used to ask you so I wouldn't have to worry, remember? But I got used to worrying. Look, I just wanted to tell you that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Hello? Yes, I'm here. Well? Well, what? I thought, well, I, I thought you might have something to say to that. Well? What are you sorry for? Being not nice, selfish, working late, even when I didn't have to. Aha! I knew it, but I'm sorry. Oh, I see. And that makes up for half a decade of me sitting alone or putting the girls to bed without your help. That's very fucking generous. But but I am, I, I am sorry, sure. And now you want me to forgive you, so you can feel better. But, and I hate to shock you with this, Reg, it's not all about you. It can't be. Not all the time. Not every single... Don't raise your voice, Wendy. I'm sorry. Stop saying that like you want me to do something. You lie to me for seven years, then you, you don't want me to be angry? What's the matter with you? Why are you such a fucking Wendy? We... We have to stop hurting each other. Oh, so you've had some revelation, and now you want me to start turning the other cheek? <laughs> what happened, Reggie? No prostitutes in Prague? What? No, so what? What? What's bringing all this on? You want me to even think about letting my guard down with you? I'd better understand what the hell is going on. I am... I am worried about a war. Very worried. T -t Terrified. I see. And what do you expect me to do? Just, just listen. All right, Reginald, I'm listening. No, no, you're not. My gosh, but you're getting good at interpreting my breathing. Is this my not listening breathing? Is it, Lord Reg? Reginald's tears were rapidly drying up. He tried another mental call, trying to recapture his sense of love. Wendy, it's Reginald. No, no, don't speak. Just for a moment, please. I'm here in Prague. I don't know what time it is there. It's night here. Very dark. Hang on. There's an alarm clock here somewhere. He scowled, pitifully tangential. Once more. Wendy, Reg, I was just lying here, thinking about you and, and, and how much we are losing by not getting along. No, I'm not blaming you. It's both of us. It's not? It's not both of us? Well, who the hell is it then? All right, no blurting. Uh, how about... Wendy? Reg, how are you? No, I just wanted to know how you are, what you've been up to. 
No, I don't have to go to Prague to listen to you. Yes, I could have done it any time over the past seven years. No, there's nothing odd tasting in the water here. I just wanted to... My God. The defences on the Siegfried line might remain uncompleted, but his wife was pure Maginot. Reginald frowned. He wiped his cheeks almost angrily. He went over a number of opening gambits, but could imagine nothing which would not evoke bitter scorn and endless rage from Wendy. He could think of none. Have we become nothing else? Is there nothing left of us but chains? Reginald turned and stared at the telephone. In an instant he became a near convert to the theory that nothing is coincidental because it rang. His eyes widened. Please, 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 please let it be her. It would mean so much. He scrambled for the light. She'll ask me what time it is and will make me feel like a complete idiot if I don't know. He turned the light on and turned the alarm clock to face him. Good God, it's only eleven o'clock. Reginald took a deep breath. He picked up the receiver. Hello, said a female voice. I don't mean to disturb you, Mr. Spencer, but the party said you would not mind being disturbed. No, no, not at all. Please, please put her through, he giggles. By all means. There was a click. Hello, cried Reginald, thick joy in his throat. Hello, Reg, said Tom's voice. They met in the high-ceilinged, white-walled hotel bar. How did you know I was here? asked Reginald, toying with a little wooden bowl of peanuts. I've been here for over a month, said Tom with a mock sinister smile. I know everything. I was expecting someone from London. Halifax, perhaps? Who's this Runciman fellow? Walter Runciman, replied Reginald. First, Viscount Runciman of Doxford, parliamentary secretary, local government board's president of the Board of Education, jack of all trades, that sort of fellow. Like (laughs) father, laughed Tom. It was an odd laugh, but Reginald had no idea why. Yes, perhaps, but without father's enviable energy. How is mother? Reginald shot him a hostile look, but smiled over it. It was like putting rouge on a corpse. Going down. I don't know what you lot were on about in there, but she's taken something quite to heart. Tom started to say something, but Reginald raised his hands quickly. No, no, don't say a word. I'm not getting caught in the middle. Tom smiled. I thought you were the diplomat. That's right. I like to negotiate with the Navy behind me. Family stuff is pure muck, pure nonsense. Reginald popped a peanut into his mouth. And what are you here for, mon frere? General flyboy buzz around? I'm here to write articles. Reginald's head swiveled quickly on his neck, seeming to wobble. What? For who? For the Times. Reginald scowled clearly suspicious. Oh, really? How did you land that rather plum assignment? A friend of Gunther's. Oh. And how is our favourite kraut? Well, busy, I imagine. There was a pause. Tom sat, wondering why he had called Reginald up. Reginald ate peanuts, wondering why Tom had called him up. How are the negotiations going? asked Tom finally. Reginald smiled. 
Oh, you can't expect me to be talking about that, not to a world-famous reporter. I've never gotten anything published. How long have you been doing this? Over a year. <laughs> Nothing published? Reginald laughed. Oh, well, we all have to have our hobbies. I am sorry. They are good people here, Reginald, said Tom, with that sudden emotional emphasis that so irritated Reginald. Yes, I can see that. Very nice. The democracies are their only hope. Do you mean Prague or the Sudetenland? There are two halves to Czechoslovakia, you know. These plebiscites are bullshit, said Tom. We both know that. Reginald smiled. I know nothing of the kind. How can one set of people force others to join them in a dictatorship? Hitler was voted in, if you recall. Yes, said Tom moodily. Yes, that was wrong, too. I'm sure Hitler appreciates your opinion. Are we going to stand by Czechoslovakia? We have no treaty with Czechoslovakia. With France, then. That is up to France. I only work for the British Foreign Office. But you can influence them. Reginald laughed self-deprecatingly. <laughs> no, not really. Everyone just pursues their own self-interest. You should... <sighs> but so many people get their self-interest all wrong. Really? Tom's hand was tightening on his metallic beer stein. <sighs> Everyone thinks that there are just two possibilities, appeasement or total war. So it's just opinion. And everyone who wants total war is insane. It's too easy. Life is never that easy. If it was that easy, why are Churchill and 30 other politicians so against appeasement? Because appeasement and total war might be the same, as opposed to standing up to the dictatorships and avoiding total war. Reginald laughed openly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom. Oh, it's a wonder to me that you got as far as you did at Oxford. <laughs> First you say, oh, it can't be so stacked on the side of appeasement. And then you say that appeasement is both cowardly surrender and total war. <laughs> Isn't that stacking the odds just a little on the anti-appeasement side? <laughs> You've got to jump off this, this polarizing fence you sit on. Everything is an extremity to you, black and white, black and white. <laughs> Reginald sighed wearily. Oh, but I didn't come down to lecture you. I gave up on that long ago. Tom's eyes had a faraway look. Do you... Do you remember that riot in London a couple of years ago? That was... That was black and white. Hmm said Reginald, almost appreciatively. You know, I never thought of it like that. You were a good person to have around. Not like Klaus, gormless statue, awash in love for the collective and about to be mown down by it. Do you know what happened to him? To Klaus? Good heavens, no. Not since you reported in from Germany. He's become a Nazi. Has he? murmured Reginald. That's a shame. Very bad. He popped another peanut into his mouth. It's nice to be away from the wife, chewing with my mouth open. Well, he said, with any luck we shan't end up facing each other at bayonet point. Tom looked at him. Oh, God, thought Reginald amused. He's preparing a speech. Sure enough. Reginald, you have to stand up with Czechoslovakia. They need our protection. 
They can't survive without us. They're depending on us. Reginald held up his hand. Tom, I know you love the view from your soapbox, but you have to know one thing. I know it's not a moral thing, but we must be practical as well. He leaned his head forward. The problem, dear Tom, is that no one, except you, Venice, and the hundred or so Czechs who actually vote, want Czechoslovakia to continue. No one else really gives a damn. Reginald had wanted to continue for the sake of drinking deep the heady, endless pleasure of crushing Tom's naive idealism. But they were interrupted by the sound of a mournful song coming from the darkening street. The few people in the bar were drifting towards the large bay windows facing the street. Even the bartender gave up his lonely polishing post, went over, and slowly drew the curtains wide. The bar was on the second floor. Tom and Reginald went up to the glass. They could see the lights of many candles eddying through the imperfections in the glass. Tom opened a door, and they both stepped out onto a wide balcony. Tom's shoulders were hunched and tense. He could not help but think of a similar balcony, a similar scene in Paris when the young woman was shot at his side. But this was something quite different. These people were walking slowly, arm in arm, and singing. Reginald tried to summon a scornful smile, but the glow of the people's faces in the soft autumn light of many candles seemed to stop his heart. He felt close to tears again. So this is what it's like to be Tom, he thought, but the thought hissed out a little flame in the rising tide of his cynicism. What are they singing? he asked Tom. Some poem. It's about France and England, how we are united, how much they love us. Wait. A brother reaches from a sea of darkness to a brother in a bright boat. An arm must come and take us from the sea. What boat can sail on without its brother? Tom smiled, wiping his eyes. Something like that. Reginald nodded, staring down. The crowd possessed a striking dignity. Reginald had always, always associated emotionalism with weakness, with showing your hand, losing status. But as he stared, he realized something. If he had known more about himself, he would have realized that what he had suddenly understood was central to understanding Tom and others, such as Churchill and Gunther. But such understanding was barred by many historical loyalties, which, being unfounded in morality, were not open to question, to his father, to Cuthbert, to his position, to appeasement, to Wendy, to himself. What Reginald realized, gazing at the river of candlelight, was that these people were both very passionate and very strong, certainly more passionate than himself, probably stronger, too, though he did not want to think of that question for more than a moment. 
watching their slow, steady steps, their raised arms and still faces, Reginald thought, They are very sad and very resolute. If war does not come, they will cheer. If war comes, they will weep, pick up their axes, and weep as they behead their enemies. They will weep throughout their war. They will weep in both victory or defeat. They will weep to kill. They will weep to die. They... Reginald took a deep breath. He could sense that Tom was watching him and raised his hand to cover his profile as if he had a headache. Reginald's eyes were wide with horror and understanding. They would rather die than lose the right to laugh and cry. He frowned. Another thought came. And I am living in a dictatorship because I am not free to laugh or cry. A domestic dictatorship which I wish to spread. The word NO came shooting up from his chest, and he grappled it down with inner arms. He turned to Tom. "'What is the matter with you?' he demanded fiercely. Tom flinched, but gazed back at him. "'They need you to save them, Reginald,' he said. "'I should throw you from this goddamned balcony!' cried Reginald. "'Who writes these scripts?' "'They live,' said Tom, taking a step forward. "'They live where you do not. "'Oh, come on!' Reginald laughed. "'Stop being so melodramatic!' These people are facing the loss of their liberties, their loved ones, their professions. The best ones among them will lose their lives under Nazism. You can do your part to save them. You're not even getting published, hissed Reginald. You're a fucking tourist. Wake up! You felt it, continued Tom. You still feel it. Look over the balcony, Reginald. You can see these people. You love them. Deep down, if you save them, you will not have lived in vain. Oh! Oh! faltered Reginald, taking another step back, striving for a sardonic tone. So now I have lived in vain. But if you betray them, after what you have felt, said Tom, taking another step, then you will have done a conscious evil. Evil, spat Reginald, raising his arms. Oh, come and see the prophet. Tom's eyes narrowed. In England, during the riot years ago, you were cursed by a man who said that if you betray England, you will die. I say to you now that if you do this evil, if you betray these people, our brothers, then you will not die. You will live to see all that you love turn to ash. You're deranged, whispered Reginald. He was pleased to hear genuine horror in his voice. He was less pleased to not know where it came from. Tom's Lunatic prophecies or a vision of the future? Save them! shouted Tom, gesturing at the singing crowd. Reginald's hands fluttered to his ears. It was not a delicate gesture. It broke Tom's heart, which never seemed to have time to mend. It was a gesture which was called upon to block, not his words, but a lifetime of surrender and betrayal. Tom thought of everything then. He thought that he understood his brother. He thought that his brother was laid bare, bright and clear, 
for the first time in his life. Reginald betrayed. When Reginald was pleasant, Reginald seduced only to betray. And what Reginald did to the world was but a small portion of what Reginald did to himself. But Tom could not rouse himself to care for what remained of his brother's soul. For what would happen to the world was vastly worse than what had happened to Reginald. And and Tom flinched visibly from this idea. And Reginald was the shadow of Hitler. The appeasers lied. They betrayed. They scorned. They were not well-intentioned. They were not cowardly. They were murderers. Because they were dead. Dead and gone. Inside and out. The song rose around the two brothers standing in opposition on the white balcony. The voices of the slow procession were infinitely sad, tender. They sang a dirge for all moral strength weakened by the acidic depths of an unknown past. Their song was an elegy for all which remains unexamined and so becomes fate for all the surrenders that must be endlessly defended, for all the wrongs that multiply through justification, for all the injustices forever repeated in the name of loyalty, for the endlessness of betrayal, for the vanity which imagines that every rule, every limitation, every exhortation to right action is mere brute power and petty control. As they sang, the Czechs mourned a world which had placed their fate in the hands of a man like Reginald. A world which had educated him, hired him, nurtured and promoted him, sent him to their country in its moment of agony, of extremity, of greatest need to speak for them. They sang as they walked because a world which had done all these things would never save them. In the choice of the messenger, the message was clear. Tom went into the hotel. He went down the stairs, his hand on the railing for balance. He stepped into the street under the flowing surface of candlelight. An old man smiled sadly at him, holding out a candle. Tom smiled back, unashamed, his face streaming with tears. He held up his candle to the flame of another. The light was past. Tom stepped into the stream of the singing crowd. He sang with them softly, though he was just learning the words. Chapter 82 
In the horrible haze of a bottomless depression, Ruth heard her door creaking open. She felt the blood drain from her face. Everything hits my nervous system with a ball-peen hammer, she thought in despair. I shall never see the end of this road. Catherine came in. She stood at the foot of the bed, almost at attention. I'm given my notice, Ruth, she said. Ruth tried to wriggle up in her bed, but her arms gave way and she sort of sagged to one side. Suddenly she felt very helpless and said furiously, Damn it, why? The boys are gone. I've been for many years. There's nothing for me to do. You cook. Anyone can cook. Ruth's face stung with tears. It's me, isn't it? Yes. Ruth frowned. There was a strange scent in the room. Truth? Catherine said, I'll be gone in two weeks. I'll leave a grocery list for whoever comes after. What I cook, what you like, your toast and jam, all of it, you won't notice a thing. Oh, Catherine, of course I will. You've been a part of this family for almost thirty years. Yes, miss, said Catherine. Her face was openly sceptical. It wounded Ruth. Why? Catherine shook her head slightly. No, cried Ruth, managing to sit up. Someone, sometime, is going to tell me something. Catherine's face did not soften. Ruth tried again. You are unhappy? Yes. Why? Because you never... Catherine smiled thinly. Married? No, miss. Yes, saw to that. Oh, cried Ruth. That's harsh. Why do you stay? Where can I go? <laughs> what can I do? Now even Tom... Catherine sat on the foot of Ruth's bed. What did he say when you talked? Ruth frowned. Catherine was being very intimate. First she had used Ruth's name. Now she was being most impertinent. But something in Ruth was panicking at the idea of losing Catherine. Something... He wanted me to oppose quit. Catherine nodded. How? But... Ruth shook her head quickly, her eyes wide. She touched her chest. Do you know, I, I don't know who, who I would be without him. Who are you with him? Oh, please. Oh, please, let's not be theoretical. Ruth looked away, but she could tell from the beating of her heart that Catherine was still looking at her. Looking out the window, she said, What if there is no heaven, Catherine? No reply. <sighs> I don't believe. So everything could be put off. That can happen too, if, if you believe. But if there is no Heaven, then I have spent most of my life in a bed, and then I will be no more. If I don't do the right thing, said Catherine, then life is not worth living. Oh, he gets away with it, spat Ruth. He swaggers through everything, <laughs> gripping his waistcoat, making his speeches. He won't get bombed, she said, her voice rising. He and his kind will take to the shelters while the others scream at the goddamn sky. And why shouldn't they? 
demanded Catherine, her voice suddenly harsh. When we all let them, you lie abed and cry at the injustice of those who act. You fly from the world and then cry at the badness of the world. But all you have to do is act. If you surrender, you cannot complain. Why? wailed Ruth. Why do you waste such words on me? I have nothing. Less than nothing. A burden. A bundle of nerves and a tiny appetite. Yes, murmured Catherine. Her fierce blue eyes softened somewhat. I always wanted to be more than what I was. But I saved one of you. Loosed one strong ship on the stormy sea. He will help. Do his part. I couldn't have no children. Couldn't school myself. But I had something to give. Some good part to do. I thought I could help you after Tommy left. But no. You could have a pill of happiness in your hand. All you would do is stare at it till you turned to dust. Ruth's hands fluttered in front of her. What am I supposed to do? What is right? What is right? Tell me, shrieked Ruth. Tell me and I will. Catherine threw an envelope onto Ruth's lap. Ruth stared down at it. Is this a resignation? nation letter but but why the handwriting was childlike and laborious it was addressed to her the return address brixton a man named uxbridge what whispered ruth frowning mightily she opened the letter and read it dear mrs spencer I was with your husband in the Great War. We did something bad together. Many men died that did not have to. I want money. I don't care if I go back to prison. He won't talk to me no more. You are my last hope. If I don't hear from you within two weeks, I'm going to the papers. Everything you love will go. Please come to me at the address. I want... Little, I can save much. D. Uxbridge. You, you opened this? I opened all the mail. Ruth's eyes narrowed. Yes, but you were going to quit. I will, if we don't take a taxi right now to this man's lodgings. Catherine's face was immobile. Ruth believed her. Help me up. She said, it's been a while. Uxbridge was at home. He did not have the appearance of a man who had many reasons to go out. His room was a little cupboard off the top landing of a flop house. The walls were stained. The air was chilly. As the women walked, the wood creaked like the hold of an old ship. Uxbridge took a minute to answer the door. He appeared to have some sort of bronchial ailment, which was triggered by sound, for he emitted a racking cough after they knocked. Then he shuffled over. Ruth braced herself. Uxbridge, she imagined, 
would have the sort of appearance not enhanced by bright light. This was, in fact, the case. He struggled for a little while, but finally managed to open the stuck door. When he did, a dank smell rushed out of the room as if overjoyed to escape. His face was... well, it had no clear patch of skin. His nose was shot through with blood vessels. His bloodshot eyes were sunk in dark circles. His forehead was freckled. Patches of deep grime muddied his cheeks. He opened his mouth only slightly with the self-consciousness of someone with terrible teeth. Mrs. Spencer, I'm guessing. Yes, this is Catherine O'Neill, my companion. You'll be coming in, then, he said, turning around and shuffling over to a mysterious pile of rags and blankets that served as a bed. You'll have to stand, he said apologetically. I don't stand so much myself these days. He grimaced, rubbing his cough. Gout. All right, said Ruth, passing a hand over her eyes. She had been looking forward to a chair very much. Catherine took her arm. So, she said, turning to Uxbridge, what's your tale of woe, then? Me and Quentin were in the war, said Uxbridge, who seemed to have half swallowed some thick, viscous matter just before the women arrived. He was a supply sergeant. But you know that, of course. He rubbed his face. The dirt did not move. I shall one day I'm paid to keep him from handing out grenades to an outfit. My thirty pieces of silver. See, we was always running out in those days of everything. <laughs> Both women flinched and drew their heads back as Uxbridge coughed, unwilling to inhale any of its obviously disintegrating lungs. Excuse. So one outfit to pay me to get them grenades, and there'd be a bidding war, and I thought I'd have more than enough money for kingdom come. <coughs> but a man gets ill over the years, ill and alone. <coughs> Many roads. So you bribed Quentin? asked Catherine. Ruth wondered if she had ever heard Catherine use Quentin's name. Oh, no. <coughs> Why well, give up my goods? I made up a story. I knew things about him. There weren't no clean supply sergeants in that war. Leastways, none I ever knew of. So he don't send the grenades to the outfit he was supposed to. He claimed they was lost. I helped him that night. <coughs> then I took the grenades off and gave them to the men that had paid me. Ruth frowned to be so tired and in the midst of this stench so technically wrong, but but the grenades were used anyway. Will anyone care? But they weren't used, he said. That outfit didn't go that night. They was just wanting them for some time. But imagine it, miss. You lose some man you loved in the war. A thousand men died that night. They went against machine gun nests without grenades. Uxbridge laughed in a deep, phlegmy way. Might as well have given them potato guns. <laughs> if you'd lost a man you loved, because he was unarmed, <laughs> wouldn't you care to know? Not so long ago, not so long. Twenty years, 
a little more. I don't think I'm even 40 yet. Maybe a little more. <laughs> Doesn't matter. God keeps track for me. So, said Catherine, it's just your word then. Oh, no, miss. <laughs> I'm not pretty, but I'm no fool. I got some money in the past from your husband a couple of times. Then he went dark on me and I moved on. Then I found that I left this at me mam's place all them years. Uxbridge lifted a clump of rags he used as a pillow and lifted out a piece of paper in surprisingly good condition. <coughs> when she died, I found it. Looking for money, I found it. It's his writing, your husband. It's his signature. A receipt for the grenades he said were never sent. Are you all right? murmured Catherine. Ruth nodded. Catherine leaned in towards her and whispered, Get ready to go, quickly. Ruth did not respond. Catherine took a step forward. May I see it, please? <coughs> said Uxbridge, uneasily shifting back on his nest of rags. You're big, you could be quick. It won't be enough to convict him, will it, without your word? No, perhaps not. Then... Catherine extended her hand. Uxbridge handed over the paper. It was a goods-received form. August 16, 1915. Catherine saw 100 boxes, hand grenades. Underneath, Quentin had written, Contents checked. Then, his signature. My goodness, said Catherine. That explains... So... Do you think <coughs> you could do something for me, miss? Asked Uxbridge, a plaintive and pitiful note creeping into his voice. We don't think so, said Catherine. Moving quickly, she turned around and walked swiftly across the uneven floor. Passing Ruth, she held out her arm and scooped her up as she passed, as a collector might net a butterfly. Hey! Wailed Uxbridge pitifully. He lurched forward on his rags. Catherine pushed Ruth through the door. Uxbridge was up and coming to them. Catherine turned and said, Say a priest, then went through the door just as Uxbridge lunged at her. She turned and, with all the strength of her frame, jerked the uneven door closed. Another wail escaped Uxbridge from the other side of the door. He scrabbled at it, but Catherine had shut it so tightly that he was unable to open it. Well, come on, then! cried Catherine, pushing a rather stunned Ruth down the stairs. Downstairs in the street, Catherine led her briskly along for a few minutes. Then Ruth could go no further and almost fell against her housekeeper. Catherine called a taxicab, supporting her. Euston Station, she said as they got in. He... he can still go to the press, said Ruth weakly. He's got nothing without this paper. Don't we need him as, as a witness? Catherine shook her head. The survivors will press for the facts, and he's an MP. There will be sufficient interest, and the police can always force him to testify. Why, why are we doing this again? I, I know, but remind me. For Tom, said Catherine. Then she smiled and turned to Ruth, who was sagging against her broad and fleshy shoulders. Well, that's not true, actually, my dear. 
It's for you. That poor man. Which one? In that awful room. Catherine snorted. Oh, of all the times to get soft-hearted. Men do evil things, they end their lives in misery. Either inside or out. He took bribes, murdered, attempted to blackmail, and you feel sorry for him. Save it. Save it for good people who fall on hard times. Because you're going to need some strength. More strength. Much more. Yes. Ruth did not seem particularly coherent. Catherine glanced at the driver, then lowered her voice to Ruth's bouncing ear. Your husband is blundering us right into a war. He's right in there, in the middle. I know that's what you and Tom talked about. He can't hide anything from me and shouldn't. So now you have a weapon. You can make him change sides. Join with Churchill. That's what has to happen. No, you, moaned Ruth, her eyes closing slowly. You do it. Oh, wives have such power. If they only knew, hissed Catherine. If women just lift a finger, they run the world. You have to do it. So you can both be saved. Let me think. No, said Catherine decisively. You have had over twenty years to think. Now you must act. Chapter 83 When flying, Tom could no longer look down at the clouds without thinking of them being pierced by bombs like pebbles into snow. He imagined being a bomber pilot now, flying over France back to England and praying for clouds to hide the flames, to conceal the acidic heart of a false angel. And it felt as if the world would end. He had realized that, walking with the Czechs. They praised England and France, but in tears, like a man on his knees declaring his love to a woman already packing her bags. And he had never known such pain. On the balcony with Reginald, he had known and felt for the first time that Czechoslovakia would fall and France would fall and Europe would end and there was nothing that could be done to avert it. He could go to Germany and shoot Hitler if he chose, but the weakness of the democracies would just summon another dictator in his place. Evil was flowing into the void of goodness. Morality had no more mountains. The lowlands were drowning in the new black tide. But it wasn't new. Tom knew that. Germany had missed the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the separation of church and state, the humanistic movement, the rise of individualism, the scraping of all metaphors from the skin of secular leaders. Germany had remained medieval while the morality and integrity required to develop science took root in the lands around her. And then this medieval land had taken in all the new science and such savages now gripped guns and bombs and mustard gas. The devil can make no arms because the devil is primitive and superstitious, but the devil can steal the arms from fallen angels and come in search of God. As he flew, droning through the great blue, Tom felt 
physically nauseous. He felt the coming shadows of his own demise in his very bones. He imagined a clean death, letting his hands drop from the joystick, opening the throttle, and flying into a sudden crater of fire. To be spared the final agonies of watching a loved one die, would that not be worth it? Is not a clean and sudden death the most beneficial? But he lacked something. Tom lacked the... He frowned as he flew, wondering why the muscles of his arms stayed steady. I still have hope, he thought, with no small degree of irritation. I still believe that something will save us. America! Hitler has a heart attack. Churchill engineers a coup. But of course, that was all stuff and nonsense. Even if Churchill got power today, there would be a war. That much was certain. Even Chamberlain knew that, which is why Churchill was kept far from the reins of power. And there could be no small wars anymore, no border disputes, no isolated skirmishes. Everyone was in now. War could be ended only because humanity could be ended. Tom thought of who he would miss the most. Who would I hate most to go ahead of me? It was three, and that was very sad. A woman I slept with once, and my two beautiful, beautiful nieces. Was that all? All? My father is a witch doctor, summoning the bombs with guttural gestures. My brother is inflicting his personal death on the whole world. My mother died some time in the last two years. Catherine. Tom, between his teeth, cursing himself for his ingratitude. Of course I. She would be the one I would miss the most. And there is precious little justice in the world. Those who caused the war should be the ones to fight it. Those who opposed it should be allowed to flee to the new world. I wonder if I have the strength to watch her die. But she will probably be safe. She'll be in the shelter with my Quentin and mother. I wonder if that is why she is staying with them. But she would not last five minutes in a dictatorship, neither she nor I. And I would live to see my nieces perverted, wearing swastikas, marching with tight fists and tight lips, denouncing their parents, denouncing me. And Quentin would be shot, and Reginald would be shot. Or do they reward the cowards who helped them? I doubt it. Tom shook his head slowly, adjusting his sunglasses. The sky was fiercely bright. It burned around the edges of his lenses like the corona of an eclipse. When I land, he thought, I will get three bottles of scotch and stay drunk for a week. It will be another year to war, likely, and I cannot stay sober the whole time. He had never been much of a drinker. University parties, of course, some experimental excess. But now it seemed like the thing to do. If I could sleep until war came, I would. And then Tom's thoughts stopped. 
He frowned, then loosened his muscles because frowning brightened the sunlight around his sunglasses. Well, why not join the Royal Air Force? It seemed like such an obvious thing to do. He was a pilot. He trained pilots. They would probably make me an instructor. Ugh. But in wartime, when things get desperate and confused, surely I could trail my squadron and do my damage. The thought excited him for about ten seconds. Then his usual lethargy softened and felled his enthusiasm. Well, my boys, he imagined telling a class of young pilots, we shan't be able to stop the bombers, but can you imagine the sight of London burning from the sky? It will be the last and most moving sight you will ever see. Well, why not? Why not give them the chance to decide their own fates? Why not give them the chance to fight back? Tom's mind clawed at the wall of impossibility. The bomber will always get through. If we felled even five out of ten bombers, hundreds of thousands of people would still die. And the Germans will have fighter pilots to defend their bombers. We would have to fly in a straight line to shoot down the bombers. The Germans would be able to pick us off one by one using whatever maneuvers they chose. And they will always have the advantage of surprise. It would take us almost half an hour to intercept and they could already be turning around by then, leaving our mothers melted into the arms of their children. For a moment, he was with the appeasers. Better to live underground than die in the sunlight? Such slaughter will destroy the island. We shall never recover. Even if we won, we would be destroyed. All life would pass from the old world to the new. We should be nothing but jackals coughing among craters. The cities would have no water. The ghosts would pity the living. Something almost came to save Tom in that moment as he droned over the clouds 15,000 feet above Paris. Something old and Anglo-Saxon and almost Viking. As he pictured the slaughter of his beloved island, and he did love England, and how terrible it would be, and how unprovoked it all was, his hands tightened on the joystick, and his vision literally burned red with rage, and he felt that he would become a fighter pilot just to murder the German pilots who did such things without reason. And what will I do when war comes? while well, I sit and listen to the radio and weep into my fists. What if there is a strong resistance? What if the British people rise to the occasion? What if we cannot even bury our dead because the bombs keep hurling them back into the sky, but we defy Hitler nonetheless? What if I miss my country's finest moment? What... What... If I am wrong? Tom almost changed his mind. Almost. But then a terrific wave of depression slammed into his rage, and his head lolled on his neck. There were no words for this particular emotion, because it was the absence of all emotion, and it was a terrifying thing. He experienced a vast, grim, nihilistic emptying out. The world became nothing but sky, and he 
nothing but air.